0: First and one of the most important barriers that face any company who is selling something, and that's around attention. How do you get attention? How do you maintain it? How do you get the kind of attention you want? Um, how does that lead then into engagement and to influence? And what I like to say is, you know, if you are unsuccessful at uh, attracting and engaging your shopper or your buyer's attention, you've lost any chance Uh, to communicate with them. So you're not even in the game yet. And so it becomes really important for companies to understand how do we get attention? And not just how do we get it, how do we maintain it? What will you do to unlock innovation? In today's fast-paced world, innovation might not be enough. Tomorrow's pioneers of change will need to be agile, able to adapt, and committed like never before. Your host, Santa Vending, invites you to listen in and join business leaders from around the world as they share their visions for success in our future business challenges.
1: Welcome to Mind Innovation. I'm your host, Santa Vending. I'm always excited to learn. And in today's podcast, we're going to talk about buying behavior and customer engagement, and especially why it's important that you should think like your customer. I want to welcome Chris Gray. Chris has been a leading expert in the biopsychology psychology and purchase behavior for more than two decades. He has interviewed, observed, and shopped along thousands of con- consumers to discover the underlying factors that govern purchase decision and buying behaviors across a wide range of product categories. So welcome, Chris. I'm excited about the topic today.
0: Thank you, Santa. I am too. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: Yeah. So um, I would like to have your definition. So what, what is consumer psychology?
0: That's a great starter question. Um, And, you know, I think about consumer psychology this way. It is the underlying uh, emotions, influences, perceptions, associations, those types of things that influence how we make decisions and ultimately how those decisions turn into buying behavior. So ultimately, understanding the psychology is about influencing the behavior.
1: Okay. And you've done a lot of research. So, so tell me more, you know, what, what are the methods, right? Because I'm sure there's some attitudes as behaviors, you know, how do you, how, how do you? Much. Be- yeah,
0: I, well, I've been a qualitative researcher for um, more than 30 years, actually, um, as long as I've been a psychologist. And I work with companies who have a lot of data. Um, sometimes they have more data than they know what to do with. Um, and so I come along on and help understand how can we use this data? How can we um, bring in qualitative insights, human insights to pair up with it, to match up with the data that you have to really make something differentiating and powerful. So many of the the, uh, research methods that I've used um, are at the surface level, some are um, some of the ones that you know of already. So, you know, doing things like discussion groups or shop alongs or interviews, um, in home um, visits, yeah. uh, and those types of things. But where I bring my psychology into play is in using um, methods like projective techniques. So, having people create something um, to represent how they feel or how they think about a particular product or a particular u- usage occasion. Because what you find is that when someone is creating something, um, they are uh, inadvertently telling you about their inner lives. Um, the, you know, it's like when you go outside to look at the clouds, you say, "Oh, that one looks like an elephant," or that one, you know, looks like Sigmund Freud. Um, What you see in that is ultimately a part of what's happening for you, because you might see something very different than I might see. And that says something about who we are. So we use a lot of those techniques to really get in and understand at a more in-depth level um, what people are thinking and feeling about these categories so that we can match that up with um, the data that companies have uh, and help them to really solve business challenges, uh, grow their business, uh, achieve the uh, objectives that they're uh, setting out for.
1: Yeah. So I have with the, you know, that's so much of like understanding the buyer's journey, right? You have the awareness, the consideration and the decision. Um, so what what happens in in the awareness? Because I think there, right, there's a lot of, I think nuggets as well for a company to find out oh, the product that they have that maybe it needs to change a little bit or maybe there's ideas for new or innovation right for new products to come in yeah. so how 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 do you how do you work around the awareness
0: well there's there's a couple different ways we can look at awareness um one of them is really the first and one of the most important barriers that face any company who is selling something And that's around attention. How do you get attention? How do you maintain it? How do you get the kind of attention you want? Um, How does that lead then into engagement and to influence? And what I like to say is, you know, if you are unsuccessful at uh, attracting and engaging your shopper or your buyer's attention, you've lost any chance uh, to communicate with them. So you're not even in the game yet. And so it becomes really important for companies to understand how do we get attention? And not just how do we get it, how do we maintain it? And when I think about that, there are really two key ways, um, two key avenues to gaining attention. Um, One is the one we think of most frequently, which is disruption, right? So this is somehow your product, your message stands out against its environment, right? So this is why school buses are bright yellow. This is why um, police cars have sirens. Uh, It's so that they stand out immediately and they get our attention. And disruption is a really great way for brands, retailers to draw attention to their message, to their products, to their packaging. Uh, But the thing is, is that kind of attention, that disruption only gets you noticed for maybe a second, often less, because what's really happening in that moment, uh, once you have their attention is our brain start to assess, is this relevant to me? Yeah. And I, here's the little activity that I always do um, in, in talking about the subject that I think is a little bit eye opening. So I just want you to wiggle your toes for a second. You mm-hmm. Wiggle your toes. You can maybe feel the inside of your shoe. Maybe your toes are cold or warm. Well, here's the thing. 30 seconds ago, you weren't thinking about your toes, Now, all of those sensations were there. Um, They were still warm or cold. Uh, But because that just wasn't relevant to you in the moment, it is automatically filtered out through a process called selective attention. And selective attention uh, is something our brains do automatically. We don't have to think about it. It's below our threshold of awareness. But what the brain is doing is it's doing one of its most important jobs and that's being an ignoring machine. Yeah. And I say that because what your brain is doing is assessing in split seconds. Is this relevant to me right now? Or are there other things that I should be paying attention to? And if it doesn't pass that test, it is ignored just like your toes, which you probably forgot about again. <laughs> so if you think about that from a brand marketing perspective, if you're the toes, you're in trouble because you're not getting that attention and you're not seen as relevant. So um, even when we use disruption, the next step is relevance. Is it relevant? Is it gonna make it through that selective attention process? And so if something gets your attention and your brain goes, oh, I see it, but no, it's not interesting. You've just lost that engagement. So it's by using uh, both disruption as well as relevance, making sure that your product message, packaging, et cetera, is relevant to that consumer in some way. That's how you attract attention and that's how you get and maintain that attention. And so by using both of those, brands can really have a leg up. Um, And I think this is why relevance is the golden ticket here. Because not only can it help us get attention, it can help us engage. It can help us influence as well, and so really important. And that's why consumer insights, shopper insights, are so important. Because in order to be relevant to someone, we have to know something about them. And the more we know, the more relevant we can be.
1: Yeah has the um, has the pandemic changed the way you know we behave?
0: Yeah, it, very much. Right. So particularly when we talk about um, uh, consumer behavior, shopping behavior um it has really um rocked huh, the the retail world in a lot of ways yeah, uh, yeah. And i think what's interesting here is that you know it, it for me and I, I don't mean to minimize the awfulness of the pandemic but it's also been a fascinating uh kind of experiment you know how often do we have situations like this where you get to really assess what's happening and at a broad you know societal scale and uh, i'm sure you're familiar with maslow's hierarchy um, at maslow's hierarchy and um you know his hierarchy of needs um uh, basically he says that if our basic needs things like safety security are not being met it becomes very difficult for us to focus on higher level needs things like having emotional engagement or having a uh, feeling um, uh, that we are fully realized as a person And we saw this happen during the pandemic. Um, If You remember in the early days when it was really scary and we didn't know what was going on and we felt very insecure uh, and unsafe, we all reverted back to making sure that those safety needs were met. So, you know, we were doing things like um, stocking up on toilet paper, apparently, Uh, right, Um, which seems silly, um, but it also is really a sign of. The need for comfort, the need for the basics, the need to make sure that we are stocked up on the things that we know we're going to need yeah. uh, because the, the future was uncertain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what we've seen as well as you know, uh, on another level is people um, engaging more online shopping um, because they were hesitant to go into stores that at the time seemed unsafe. Um, and I think that it has affected us in many ways. And in a lot of ways, it has really made people feel more comfortable with shopping online, um, of transacting online, um, and, and particularly in certain categories that maybe they hadn't considered before. Um, and so you know, things like you see the cars are being sold online now and things like yeah. that, that you would think, huh, that's, that's a little odd, but it's happening now. The watch out I have for marketers is not to put too many eggs in that basket, because when a behavior arises um, or changes because of a crisis, when that crisis resolves, unless that new behavior is providing uh, a lot of additional value, people will tend to revert back to their previous behavior. Um, and so I know, you know, in the early days, people were saying, you know, people are never going to the stores again, or you yeah. know, everything's yeah. going to be different. And while I think it is true that people have become more comfortable with shopping online, um, we are starting to see uh, people reverting back to getting back into stores, being more comfortable with that. Um, it's not to say that uh, this hasn't been a boost for e commerce It certainly has, but not to the degree that we thought initially, where we thought, oh, "Are people ever going to go back to stores?" Yeah.
1: What What about how we communicate with each other? Has that changed over the pandemic?
0: Huh. That's a great question. Um, I think it has to some degree. I think for me, I think some of the biggest changes I've seen is just there's people are a little bit more um, insulated. I think. I think it you know suddenly became very scary to talk to other people in real life. Yeah. Um, and. And so I think that for a lot of people, uh, face-to-face communication dropped dramatically uh, and people, you know, were tending to, um, you know, more, more, even more texting, even though that was already obviously something. But I think there's a little bit of hesitancy in these face-to-face engagement with strangers in particular that will have some lingering effects for some time. We are now in a place where I think we understand the virus much better. We understand transmission much better. Um, And so we can kind of gauge the safety of certain situations a little bit better. Um, And so that's allowed us to to be more uh, face to face again. But I think that even for me, um, you know, being a qualitative researcher, I have always done a lot of very face to face work and. Um, much of the one-on-one interviewing work that I do is now online. Uh, I don't see that going back because it has actually added value and that it allows me to do a lot more of it and a lot shorter time, um, with a lot less travel, which is great. Okay. Um, but I do think when it comes to uh, group, group dynamics, um, those types of things, if shop belongs, uh, I think there's always tremendous value in being in a room with someone.
1: Yeah let's uh, let's talk about the you know observation skill set that that is really important how how can that if you have an organization right how can mm-hmm. that actually boost or be effective for your marketing and your sales team to yes. skill
0: i think observation is a really important skill for anyone who is in marketing or sales uh, because it allows you to develop more empathy for people um data is extremely useful we have a huge amount of data available to us as marketers these days, and that is a tremendously good thing. But I think where the real power with data comes in is when we can combine it with more human insights to create something that is unique, differentiated, it's a different perspective or a different take on the behavior that can help brands and retailers really set themselves apart. And so observation for anyone who's a researcher, anyone who's in marketing, anyone who is in sales, Uh, Becomes really important because it helps you pick up on little nuance, nuances on context, on those types of things that will uh, enhance what you already know. Um, And so, I think when it comes to developing observation, it's uh, uh, workshops and and, uh, presentations that I've been giving for years around how to improve your sense of observation. It really starts with setting aside your own preconceptions um, because if you are looking at uh, the behavior of someone or talking to someone and you have preconceptions about them or you have prejudice about them or you have some idea about what they're going to tell you now you're filtering it through your own experience yeah and so that can lead to some big misfires um, when it comes to marketing and communication uh, and it can cost companies uh time money efforts um that they just you know Everyone's tight these days. You know, we don't want to be wasting a lot of marketing dollars. And so I think by using observation and uh, layering that in with your data, um, that's going to allow you to really create that unique message or product or innovate in a way that is really relevant and different for your consumer.
1: Yeah. So if you're like a, a new company and not a new, but you need to start on this journey, right? How many mm-hmm. do you, should you interview if it's something you're doing yourself? Is it five? Is it a hundred? You know, what's what's the golden number? Here?
0: Well, you know, it really is. There's no single number that I would say to any organization. One thing I would say to companies that are, um, you know, startups or are new, um, they don't maybe don't have a lot of budget for hardcore research, um, observation can be something that is really useful, Um And I think that, uh, you know, whether it is, you know, the situation is going to demand how much, how many people, you know, I would try not to um, put too many, um, too much emphasis on interviews with five or 10 people. I mean, that's pretty small set of people. Um, But so, you know, thinking in, you know, starting at 25, 30, you know, those numbers um, is a good place to start. Uh, I think the important thing is to know that that is also kind of a small number. So you have to be careful in what you make of it, but you can learn so much um, from uh, that number of observations, uh, particularly in very specific situations. So I I sometimes work in the pharmaceutical industry and I've done a lot of observational work with um, in doctor's offices, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it enables them to kind of see not only how patients are Uh, feeling as they're uh, in the uh, waiting room, but also in talking with doctors and understanding their needs and what's important to them. Um, You know, anytime that um, we have the opportunity to observe and engage directly, uh, it is really an opportunity for innovation because you'll see things that are just not going to be um, brought to light through data per se. Yeah.
1: It's funny. And I would use say It reminds me of being at the dentist and, and you sit in that chair and you look up. Right? I've been at a dentist where I have worked with lightings for many, many years. So I can see the color difference of if it's a warm color or is a cold color. And then I oh, am okay. in that chair, right? And I'm like, oh my God, looking up. And it's just like, couldn't they just have nice lighting in here? Because that's, yeah. it's an emotional feeling to sit in, uh, be in that chair. And maybe they never, I don't know if they sat in that chair. But that's just an observation, right, of yeah. me sitting in that chair.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think it—it it, <laughs> that is a particularly uh, anxiety-provoking experience for a lot of people. And so finding ways to help put people at ease, you know, yeah. and, and it as simple as lighting, as your color scheme in your office, of the yeah. music that you're playing, yeah. um, all can make a very big difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just uh, um, something I also is to, as a, as marketing, right, is to join the sales calls when they talk to customers just to be that fly in the wall to hear what our customer asking them of questions that gives you some you know, I know it's not a it's more an observation. it's not giving you everything, but it's giving sure. you that first um, first information you know what's what's actually going on and what our customer asking you.
0: I've I've listened in and sat in on many many sales uh pitches uh for that very reason. And yeah, I think you said you said something important, which is it's not going to be everything. And I think that's important with any kind of research that you're doing is understanding the limitations of that research and being honest about them. Um observation is not going to provide you with the same kind of uh, of knowledge or um information that um, data will or that having a conversation will. Um, And so it's important to really understand what does this bring to the table as a strength and what doesn't it bring? So I think a lot gets lost in translation sometimes with research um, and thinking that whatever the type of research is, that it's going to solve all your problems. Um, It can solve a subset of your problems. Um, And if you combine um, different types of methodologies, then you can kind of not only span more broadly and solve more problems, but you can also go more deeply and understand them at a better level. So I think, you know, for example, like with observation, I would never say, you know, observation is going to result in um uh, maybe not never, but it's not going to result in useful data, like useful percentages of this percentage of people did this and that. If you have a huge number of observations, perhaps, um, in a very rigorous plan for how you um uh, you do go through your observations, but generally, observation is going to provide with this more human, more qualitative insights that you layer in with the data.
1: Yeah. What about the relationship? You know, to to your customers. Um, yeah. How do you how do you keep a really good relationship? Um, because everybody's time is uh, is valuable, right?
0: yes exactly and no one wants to have their time wasted and that goes for both marketers and shoppers and uh consumers as well i think it's important for any brand um, particularly in this day and age when our consumers and shoppers have access to more information about you than ever before it is really important that um, marketers brands retailers are authentic that they're honest, that they're up front with their customers. Um, Probably one of the biggest questions I get uh, when I speak to groups or have interactions with uh, potential clients is, well, you're a consumer psychologist. So don't you just trick people into buying things they don't want? (laughs) And my response to that is, well, you can do that. You know, I think as marketers, we're sophisticated enough, and we have enough data and information in our fingertips. We can get anyone to buy something once, right? But it, that's a very short-term strategy that has a lot of long-term pain um, for a brand or retailer. and I don't recommend it. Um, there, I know there are a lot of uh, sort of amateur psychologists out there or who will tell you about, you know here are some psychology tricks you can use on your customers to get them to buy. And you know while some of those tricks are, are valid um at the end of the day how do you feel when you realize you've been tricked or coerced
1: yeah not good
0: don't feel good right i mean you feel angry and research bears this out that when people feel or realize they've been coerced the first reaction is to feel resentment and anger um, and to resist Um, those efforts and so what you're doing is you're creating a relationship with your customer that is based on really doubting you being cynical about your messaging because you've already tricked them and so I think that from a longer term perspective it's important to really think of the relationships that you have with your customers just like you would think of relationships with people in your life Um, You want to be a good steward of those relationships. And I I like to talk about uh, having resilient relationships with your customers. Um, And what I mean by that is that these are relationships that are potentially longstanding, and they're also forgiving. Um, If you think about um, in a relationship you have with a brand that you really love, you know, brands are going to screw up once in a while. They're going to innovate something that doesn't hit. They're maybe going to have a message that, They didn't really think through very well. Um, And if those brands have done the work of creating resilient relationships, then there's going to be a little more forgiveness for them. Um, Their customer base is willing to give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt before they turn to their competitors. Uh, And that is really valuable. Um, And having that kind of emotional engagement with your customers becomes so important. And research has shown that when customers are emotionally engaged in your brand, they are three times more valuable over the course of their lifetime to the brand. And so there's a lot of payoff in the long-term, thinking long-term about your customers versus how can we just trick people this one time to buy something and then make them angry or resent us or avoid us? Because, you know, as the saying goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm gonna walk away. Uh, and that's not a really good thing for brands to be facing.
1: No, no, no. Um, it makes me think about as well, you know, if a, if a company, you know, if there's something and they screw up, right, and you need to get them to to fix it. And that's so the way they approach and how they're actually are, are fixing, you know, if it's something that broke or right, or if it's something that was shipped wrong or something, but how they approach it. Is, is also giving like a, I don't know if you want to call it like a tattoo of that experience, because if they did it well, even though it was a bad experience in the beginning, you know, you turn that relationship and that customer into telling how it actually turned out to be a success. And yeah. then they will tell that story, right? Instead of just being angry the whole time, but it takes a lot for an organization to make sure that they build that loop of, of making yeah. sure that they fix everything.
0: And that is exactly right. I mean, companies are like people, they're imperfect. They're made up of people. So they're going to be imperfect, right? And I think that any company should be prepared for those moments when things don't go well with their customers. And like you said, be prepared to turn that into a positive experience by the way you respond to it. Uh, Because we've seen time and time again, what happens when companies respond poorly to a mistake. Um, It never works out for them. You know, Uh, and especially, as I said, in this day and age, you know, people have access to information, they have access to each other. So someone feels like they've been jilted by a brand, they have a huge stage uh, and a big audience to be able to share that experience with. And so it's really important that we continually think about relationships with customers, just like we would relationships with people in our lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, what about your own? You know how how have you learned over the last couple of years, maybe ten years or twenty years? Have you changed the way you have been working?
0: Ah, uh, yes. Um, certainly I have. You know, um, and one of the things I start with a story. Uh, this is a story I I tell all the time because it was so. It's been so important in my career and the way I think about what I do. And it was the first day of graduate school, certainly I'm um, studying to be a psychologist and show up to first day of graduate school. And with all these first year psychology students waiting for the professor, I'm all excited. And the professor walks in and he says, without saying even hello, he just walks in and says, you will never understand people. And I just remember everyone looking around the room going, Wait, what, what do you mean? I just paid my tuition. I mean, this is what I'm here for, right? <laughs> um but then he continued on he, he gave us some time to react and then he continued on and he said and the better you are able to accept that the better you will be and the more effective you'll be as a clinician and the more people you'll be able to help and I have to admit it took me a long time to really fully process that um and and fully understand what he meant by that um but the way I look at it is when you enter into the human sciences and i very much consider marketing a human science it is in so many ways yeah when you enter into a human science you have dedicated yourself to a life of constant learning constant improvement constant changing the way you think and being open to that because when it comes to human behavior nothing is static and if you're not continuously learning continuously trying to find out more then you're opening yourself up to biases, to blind spots, um, and to a whole array of issues that can really become a problem for a brand or a a company uh, in any way. And and so I think it, for me, it is about constantly changing. It is about constantly being willing to say, what don't I know? You know, what more is there for me to learn? Um, Is something that every marketer, um, whether you're in research or whether you're in sales or whether you're in Communications should be asking themselves what more is there for us to learn? Because in addition to just learning more about your customer, need, it'll be more relevant to them. It's also, I guarantee, you, your competition's probably doing the same thing, <laughs> and so you, there's also a little bit of a race there to to be on top of who that customer is, what their needs are, what what's relevant to them, and doing it better than your your competitors as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, what about the the knowledge? You know, with all this data. Uh, even if it's too much sometimes, right? How do you share the knowledge? What what do you, have you seen of, of great ways to share the knowledge within an organization so sales and marketing are aligned?
0: It's always tough, um, you know, and I think it takes a lot of effort. I, you know, I have worked um, in marketing for a long time, but I've worked very frequently with sales teams as well. Um, and it's, you know, they're both coming at these issues from very different perspectives with different needs. And I think it really becomes important to be intentional about communication, intentional about um, the needs of both of those groups and how can we, because they could be incredible allies. Um, Often they tend to be um, at odds it seems, but that doesn't have to be. And I think um, being intentional, the way that you use data, the way that you store data and make it accessible Um, the way that you share information across an organization and being very intentional about it is one of the things that will really limit a company is having those silos um, where information stays with one group and it doesn't spread. And so that really requires at a leadership level, um, being committed to open communication, of being intentional about sharing um, and not only sharing data and information, but also sharing successes, sharing lessons learned, um, sharing challenges and problems that, you know, you can help as a group to solve, uh, I think is really important. And if, if you're not being intentional and purposeful about it, I think our tendency is to retreat to our silos. Uh, and so it's not something that just happens. It requires a lot of effort.
1: Yeah. It's a culture, right? You need to build around it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you give yourself an advice if you look like 20 years ago? and now with yeah. you all your observations <laughs> what will you tell yeah. you um
0: boy i've gotten so much great advice in, in my life um i think the advice that i would give myself from 20 years ago is um that having confidence and knowing that what i was doing was valuable um i think there. are there's a lot of focus on the data side of things. And, you know, I've been a qualitative researcher. I deal in sort of the fuzziness of human behavior. Um, And I think sometimes that can create some self-doubt about, you know, is what I'm doing really helpful? Because it's not data. Um, Obviously 20 years later, I fully understand what I bring to the table, but I think 20 years ago it was a little more challenging for me. Um, And so I would just say, you know, what you're bringing to the table is unique. Um, that deep psychology, that understanding of what makes people tick, what influences their behaviors, um, and to keep at it and really keep just pressing it. Um, and unfortunately, I did. <laughs> um, so that's great. Um, but I think I probably could have saved myself a couple of headaches along the way. Um, but you know, you made me think too about some of the advice that I received that has been very helpful along the way. Yeah. Um, and there were a few. I right? just one is. Uh, when I, pretty early on in my career, I had a, a CEO who was just a visionary, um, shout out to Andy Murray. Um, and one of the things that he said to me that has, I mean, 20 years later, it still resonates for me, is he, he would always say, experience is undeniable. That you can talk about data, you can talk about behavior, you can talk about people's emotions, but until you're able to experience it firsthand, it really doesn't sink in for people. And so finding ways to help people have experiences with their customers, to have experiences where they're um, able to see the challenges, see the struggles um, and experience them firsthand if they can um, is really critically important. And I encourage everyone to really heed that really sage advice that I received so long ago. It's made a big difference in my career i can only agree on that one
1: um if any of the listener wants to to reach out to you how can they connect with you
0: sure absolutely well, you can certainly go check out my website of uh, thebicologist.com uh, and you can reach out to me directly at chris.gray and it's g-r-a-y at thebicologist.com and i'm always happy to hear from from people and, and talk about consumer psychology it has been a passion for me for more than two decades uh, as we as i mentioned earlier it's Uh, You know, I tend to get bored of things pretty easily. And I have stayed fascinated by people, their behavior, the way they make decisions, what influences them. Uh, I, I don't think I've seen a dull moment throughout my career.
1: Oh, that's good. So and I will I'll add the links to the show notes and also on the mindinnovation.com on the episode page so it's easy to to connect with you. So it was awesome, Chris, to have you on the podcast. I think you know everything about the experience, right? Sitting in that dental chair. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> then look up. No. No, but it's it's all about the experience because you will actually remember it, right? So so thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Santa. I really appreciate the time.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Mind Innovation Podcast. New episodes are dropping bi-weekly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcast. You can find me on LinkedIn, search for Sana Vinding. You can also find me on YouTube, search for Mind Innovation, or go to my website, sanavinding.com or mindinnovation.com. Stay curious, keep learning.